We're looking at Acts. We're looking at the communities of faith in Acts. And we're continuing in our journey uh, today, the end of 9, going into 10. And we're going to look at a couple of people that we're going to glean from this morning. But let's read that last scripture, the last passage, that last verse in chapter 9 together. And it says, so, that, so it was that he, Peter, stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. So it was that he, Peter, that is, stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. We last week looked at Peter going to a couple places near the Mediterranean. He's staying in Joppa, and it says in the last scripture that we didn't talk about last week, but well this morning, a little in-depthly, and that is that he was hanging out with a tanner. So you're asking, how good of a tan did the guy have? <laughs> And if he was blessed like me, he started out with DNA that probably predisposed him to a good tan. He's a tanner. It means he's tanning animal skins. Animal skins. It's significant. It's a shocking statement that it says on the slide. By the way, if you need a Bible, there's some on the wall. If you want to raise your hand even now, the ushers can come bring you one if you need one. But um, as we continue on, it's a, it's, this is a shocking statement that Luke makes. Uh, to, to his readers, saying, hey, by the way, Peter, his choice of residence, his Airbnb stay was with Simon the Tanner. And that's very shocking. Let's look at why. Peter's staying with a tanner. Uh, they were tanners of animal skins, so they were around death continuously. Tanners were allowed around death. You needed a skin. Obviously, you're not going to use one on a live animal. You're going to wait. You're going to have death as the animal is killed. And the skin is prepared for use. Uh, Leviticus 11.24. We're going to be in Leviticus 11. So you may want to mark your Bible there because we're going to come back to it. But let me just read verse 24. It says, it's talking about the context of this chapter is the Levitical law being given to the Israelites. And here God's identifying clean and unclean animals. And he's identifying, and in 24 it says, by these, or these animals and insects and whatnot, you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Now what does it mean to be unclean? Unclean is basically you're taking something holy, set apart, in and of itself created by God, or used by a person, and it's consecrated unto the Lord as set apart for the Lord's purposes. If something is unclean, it means that it has been tarnished or contaminated so that it's no longer fit for God's use. That's unclean. So God has, we'll look at this a little bit in a, in a section here coming up, but God has, as you woke up today and you came to church, God has every right to deem some things fit for him and his use and some things not. Would you agree with that? As authority in our lives, he has the complete authority to say, these things are good for my use in your life, and these things are not. It's what we do with that that makes all the difference. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but just for a sec, leave a marker in Leviticus 11. We'll come back to there. So obviously, if the Levitical law says in verse 24 that you're going to be unclean till evening, if you're a tanner, that's your trade. You're going to be working with these dead animal skins all the time. So thus, you're going to be continuously what? Unclean. So Peter, by default, now the Jews were accustomed to avoiding things that would, quote-unquote, make them unclean or contaminated before the Lord. And Peter is not only visiting this tanner, but he's staying with them, staying with Simon. And we'll continue to look on this list. Do you know that tanners were required to, leave, to live According to Jewish custom, at least 75 feet away from town. There's a couple reasons for this. Um, no one wanted to be contaminated, obviously, or unclean, just by hanging out, going through the midst of crowded streets. So they were required to be in, at a distance away for reasons given already. And there was a lot of contentment for them. I was, re I was studying for this, and I found out that a tanner's house was not somewhere you'd want to frequent if you were sensitive in your olfactory sense. It smelled really bad, really bad. Why? You guys don't have to probably think too hard about that. But it would stink a lot. And so it was putrid in its smell. But also, 
you know, even if a gal found out, as it's written up there, if she found out that somebody was a tanner and she was already engaged to that man, then by Jewish custom, according to the Mishnah, she could get out of that engagement and not be held to it. Because there was so much contempt for someone who would choose a profession that would make them habitually unfit for God's service. Kind of put two and two together culturally, that's what you're looking at here. So the fact that Peter's in dwelling, hanging out with, eating with, enjoying the leisure and company of Simon the Tanner is very much indicative to what God's doing successfully in changing Peter's heart. Peter is going through a transformation, and we get to read about it here in the Word. But really, I want you to get the flavor of this. If you were a fellow Jew and committed as Peter was to the Jewish law and custom, and you found out he's staying where? You would be very, at least confused, if not angry. If not having a greater amount of contempt for your brother Peter, who you once trusted in to really be a good example in a lot of ways. See, see where I'm going with this? So... The fact that it says for us that Peter's staying with a tanner is very significant to the fact that God, praise his name, is working out Peter's salvation in real practical ways. And Peter, as evidenced here, is submitting to that work, at least partially. So you're going to see a little bit more how that progression still happens. Now, last week we talked about the progression, the development of Peter himself in, in the Lord as he goes through these things, as the Lord made Peter who Peter is, and he's very, at times, as we talked about, very impulsive, very quick to make statements that fill in the blank, kind of awkward space of silence. You know, people like that, that aren't, that are quick, or you yourself are like this, where you can't stop talking because you don't like silence. I think Peter would fit that category well. But God made him, Okay, so God's part, partly responsible, right? God made him a certain way, but it was being refined and developed and sanctified, made more Christ-like through Peter's journeys. And Peter would appear, just by virtue of him choosing this place to stay, is submitting to it. Now, here's the application, just parenthetically, for all of us. Did you know that as you sit here today, God's working out something He's working out something in your life right now to develop you, to make you more like Jesus. God is working out each one of us. If I ask for a show of hands, every hand should go up. Is God moving in your life where he's redefining something? Maybe he's changing up the way you view something. Maybe you see something differently than you did even a day, a week, a month, or a year ago. I was thinking about this in my own life. You know, there was a time when uh, first involved in, in leading worship. Not all that many people know that I used to lead worship for Calvary Slow. Some of you do. You've been around for a while. But in that process, I remember talking to a good friend of mine, Phil Sims, who I will name by first and last name because he's a, such a good bro. He's here somewhere. He's in the back. Okay. So he can vouch that this is true. We're about ready to go out. I, think it, I don't think it was that. I think it was Sunday morning. We're about to lead worship. We're about to go out on the platform and lead. And I, I got a little bit perturbed, not perturbed, maybe just a little bit confused slash perturbed at Phil because he had the audacity to do this. He was going to go out and play bass in the worship team with his shirt untucked. Right, Phil? You know, it's true. We talk about it all the time. He comes, he's all, hey, look. Here I am preaching the word years later, and of course, shirt's not tucked in. We have a good chuckle about it now. Because I was so convinced that in order to be respectful to those around us, we should have uh, play well, but we should also wear our clothes well. In this case, it meant tucking it in. You know, you got to have belt showing or it's not respectful. You're not really prepared for worship. Now, I didn't count how many of the guys here had worship, you know, leading worship today had their shirts tucked in, but that's a stumbling block to me, as you can tell. 
Okay, so tell me, you guys, I'm not the only one here that over time you see this foolishness and silliness of some of the things you held really dearly and tightly that God kind of, over time, massaged out, got out of your life, and gave you bigger, more godly perspective on. Amen? Have you seen that be true? The things that we, that we did 20 years ago in ministry, Brian and I have a good time. Like, remember when? And we're like in our shame, kind of like, yeah, I remember when, you know. Because we've gotten far enough now, we realize there's so many things we would do differently, given the chance to do it again. Now, that's life, right? That's life. You look at it very much in perspective as you get older, as you grow. And some of the things, a lot of things, to be honest with you, that we held really dearly as priority in this church, it's going to be this way. Can I tell you that God and his grace and his mercy has loosened those grips and allowed us to see a body of Christ that's much bigger than we ever thought possible when we started out? And, and I love the fact that I can serve alongside a brother that's very teachable because over the years, I tell you, there's a lot of things that he's let go of. And to fall in line with that leadership is very easy. Here's the secret. When you want to have a successful marriage, guys, if you're so bent on the particulars in life and demand that, they, that those rules be followed by your family as you go by this journey on a whim of what's important that really isn't biblically centered on reality, then I would say you need a lot of prayer. You need a lot of prayer from your wife and your kids. And, and don't you see parenting from the first kid you have to the last kid and how you tend to parent a little differently, don't you, by the time the last one comes around? Now, I'm 10 years after my closest sibling. I have three siblings. There was a 10-year gap between my sister and me, and my brother, who was the oldest, full-on resented me because I got away with everything. My parents didn't even have a curfew for me, and he was like, this is not fair. And I'm here to tell you, it was really fair. <laughs> I'm glad my parents had that perspective, holding things loosely. So let's continue. God's doing this, I'm just kidding, for my own family. I will not apply those principles. God is changing Peter's perspectives about life, isn't he? This process covers many chapters ahead in Acts. You guys, uh, this change happens progressively over time. Praise God. Um, this process, as we'll see in, as we continue in the journey of Acts, as more people bring the word to us uh, next week, Nick, our high school pastor, is going to be teaching as he's going in on Cornelius uh, a little bit more, and we're excited about that. But we're going to see, continue, just keep that in mind, the development of Peter, and hopefully in and of itself, looking at your own life, thinking, Lord, you're doing that in my life, and thank you for it. Now, Peter had some strong grounds as did the Jewish community looking at Leviticus 11. You may be thinking that, hey, it just seemed pretty clear. Does God change his mind on things? Is the word not totally valid for all you know, future generations? We'll look at that in a little bit, hold that thought. But for right now, these common long-held beliefs, the, the way that you've been brought up or the traditions or the customs that you've been raised in, those are things that God has to do a long-term, usually, investment in your life to do. But, but as we'll see in Peter, sometimes he just does a miraculous visit, and he just changes it. Think of Paul. Think of Saul becoming Paul. That, those were long-held beliefs. G Jesus is an enemy to Saul. The Christians are enemies to Saul. And, and the grounding by which Paul stood on that perspective to throw people into prison, or Saul, I should say, it took the miraculous God meeting him on the road to Damascus to bring those scales off his eyes. And so we pray for both, don't we? Lord, when I need it, visit me. Give me the shocker. Let me have the heart, you know, the, the, the pump of electricity charged to my heart where I can totally see the way you want me to see. And other times it's, Lord, be patient as you develop me over time. And Lord, give people around me patience as well. And here's a, here's a blessing as it's written up here in the last point. You don't have to be perfect, obviously, you don't have to be perfect to be used by God. There's some great news, eh? Who here is perfect? Who here is ready and always to be used by God? We're made perfect by the blood of Christ, but we're not perfect in the application of that blood. So be encouraged, because Peter's evidence that we can be used by God. Okay, let's go on. Acts 10, 1 through 16. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, or regiment, 
a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Now this is not a, a saved man, and God's visiting him there in that city. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a hub of the Roman army. The Roman government had set up that in Caesarea, that uh, hub of strength. And apparently this Cornelius here is, is, is fearing God at the same time being a Roman citizen, a Roman soldier. And it says, God said, sent a vision of an angel to him to say to him, Cornelius. So he gets called by name. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? Now, last week, you guys, we talked a lot about the fear of God. Hopefully that um, if you missed that message, it may be worth it for you to go back on our website and and check that out because we spent a great deal of time of what it means to fear God and to be comforted by him and how healthy that is. And here we see an angel of God, another example in the scripture where a person comes face to face, whether it's in reality or a vision or a dream, and they're stricken with fear as they see, not God in this case, but an angel. And he simply says, what is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, your prayers and your giving, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, before Jehovah, before Yahweh. You, an unsaved man, and what you're doing and have done is before God, and God is fully aware of your actions to him and for him, and for the people. Now, go on. It says, and now, he's telling Cornelius this, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, that is the Mediterranean Sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, He sent them to Joppa. So we're going to stop right there. Let's look at Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion, as it says. Next slide. Of the Italian cohort. Now that meaning of that name, that cohort, is it's an ancient Roman military unit. The Roman army was divided up into numerical groups. One of which was the Italian volunteers located in Caesarea. And they were known for their loyalty to Rome. One commentary I read said that they were volunteers, signed up for this mission, if you will, to bring order in this particular geographical area of the Roman Empire that was growing all over the Mediterranean area and beyond. And so you have divided up these legions, 6,000 men. These were all Italians. They were all familiar with Rome. They had all been very familiar with the government, with the military, with the lifestyle, with the gods of the Romans. And of those 6,000 men located and centered in this area, they were divided up by 10. They get 600 men, which would be called a cohort. So he's, the, the text, Luke is saying, this is a centurion ahead of 100 guys. Of the 600 guys, being a cohort, of the 6,000 guys that are all based there in Caesarea. So, why is that significant? Well, it's interesting in the scriptures, every time you see a centurion in the New Testament, you see him being shed in a positive light, spiritually speaking. So, every time you see, let's look at a, at a couple examples of this. In Luke 7, you have the servant, or the servant who's ill, near death, and the centurion is said to have sent men to get Jesus so that his servant can be made well. And, and actually, the message that the centurion gives him, if you recall this story, it's powerful. We looked at this at our last men's breakfast together. Luke 7, and the, the authority of Christ and how it's portrayed by this centurion in this example is this. He says, hey, Jesus, will you come do the miraculous for my servant? And will you come because I know without a shadow of a doubt, I'm parenthetically adding this to the text, I know without a shadow of a doubt, that you can do it, and here's why. Because I'm used to telling soldiers where to go and what to do, and they do it like that. He says, I get authority. I understand how authority is given and how I'm a man over men and I'm a man, a man under men. I know how it is to answer to those in 
the authority over me, and I do what they say, or death, or I tell other men to do what they're supposed to do, and they also die if they don't obey me. I know authority. You, Jesus, have that authority. Can you imagine? That's pretty big uh, connection there on the part of a Gentile man from Rome to say, hey, forget about all the gods from Rome. I know who really has authority. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's going around. I've seen and I've heard him heal many, and I know he can heal my servant. And do you know that Jesus gave him the greatest compliment, perhaps in the New Testament, saying, "This I haven't found faith like this in all of the people of Israel. How shocking would that be? Wait, who did you just talk about? The occupying officer, centurion? But nonetheless, positive light. The next one is at the cross, there's a centurion. All it said about him as he looked up at Christ dying on the cross, and surely this is the Son of God. He, he put the connected pieces together. There was something about centurions that were very respected in that they were loyal, they were committed, and they were good men. In this case, not obviously all of them, but here we have an axe. Same thing. God saw it to send Peter and arranged it through his angels and visions and told Peter, you're going to go, and told Cornelius, this is who you need to go get. Send for him. Because God loved this centurion so much and saw as a memorial before him his prayers and his almsgiving. That's, a, that's exciting to me. You guys, think of it this way. There are people that you are praying for right now that God is moving in miraculous ways to bring them to Christ. There are people that you are praying for right now. There are people that you haven't thought to pray of pray for yet, or have gotten lazy in your prayers. And what I mean by that is this, that, that you once fervently prayed for someone to come to know Jesus because you know they're in the throes of the world. You know that they're missing out on the abundant life of Christ. And you started praying at one time for them, but over time it's faded and the fervency has faded. As you've gotten a longer uh, gap between seeing the prayers given, the alms before God and the answer of it, you've gotten weary of that. Myself included, I can think of a number of people who I've grown weary of praying for, for them to know the love and the saving grace and the mercy of God through his son Jesus. But here we see, and let it be encouragement to all of us, that as we pray, those alms are going before God. And they're there as a memorial to him that we have hearts for people that need to know Jesus. Don't give up praying, in other words. Don't give up. You yourself, myself included, are products of God's miraculous intervention in answer to prayers of other people. Cornelius was not overlooked by God. Whomever you're praying for, whomever I'm praying for, they're not overlooked by God. Be encouraged by that. So, what was it about Cornelius? Well, he was a devout man who feared God, it says here in the scripture. We see all of his household was, was of faith in the Jehovah God of the Jews. It says it, That way I would just conclude he was very intentional as a dad. Very intentional. He led his family well, so to speak. Dads, be intentional with your kids and your wives. Dads, be intentional with your kids and your wives. Lead them to Jesus. You don't have to be a perfect dad. Lead them to the perfect dad. You don't have to be perfect. Lead them to the perfect dad. Okay? Be about being intentional. Be about, hey guys, we're going to go to the beach kickoff tonight. I'm tired. I want to sleep. I want to watch the game, but we're going tonight. Because I want us to fellowship together. Guys, I know we're tired and we were up late Saturday night. We're going to church today. Because that's a priority in our family. Guys, we're going to serve mom by doing the dishes today. Guys, we're going to serve mom by doing the dishes today. (laughs) Can't get off the hook now. It's on the tape. It's on the, going to be on the website. <laughs> Just being intentional. <laughs> he was a giving man. He gave. He gave. He saw needs. He gave to them. They didn't have to. As a Roman soldier, you wouldn't have to give, but he did. And it was noticed. And he prayed continually. As in mentioned later in the passage, it says he's recounting his own experience to other people. And he says, while I was praying, I got visited by an angel. Here he was praying at the normal time of prayer for Jews. It says uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he was praying. And his actions ascended before God. Now here's the main key. Take a look at this next slide. With all that on his resume, he still needed the gospel. Boom. Drop the mic, walk off the stage. Guys, 
What do we depend on? See, if he didn't need Jesus, if he didn't need the message of Jesus, if he didn't need the completion of his already seeds of faith, then God wouldn't have gone to such great lengths to send Peter his way to explain how Jesus was the Messiah sent to save him, his household, all of Rome, and the Jews included. There was still a need for him to know Jesus. Even what he was doing was rising up before God. But you know what it was? It was void of the Savior. There's a great lesson here, right? The good shepherd, as it says on the slide, the good shepherd knows those that are seeking him and will move. Rest in this as you pray. But don't mistake the gospel as being an accessory to religious activity. The gospel has to be the center of religious activity. Has to be. God knows those who are sincere this day and age of who loves God in very general terms or chooses a path of life very much on one hand saying, I'm religious or I love God or even I love Jesus, but really you see no evidence of them following the Jesus of the scriptures. Those are dangerous places to be because we get self-deluded and to think we're okay with God. I'm doing great things. I'm giving a lot of cash to worthy endeavors. I'm praying a lot. I'm very spiritual. My spirituality takes me outdoors. I don't need church. I don't need people. I'm a Christian. I can do it my own way. Or even I'm not a Christian. I'm just, every path leads to God. I'm, I'm just fine on my own. I'm very, they wouldn't say this, but in a sense, if you were to evaluate, I'm very religious. I have a lot of religious things. I'm even praying regularly and often to God. But guys, is that enough to be saved? Everybody turn right now to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, this is Paul. In verse 15, we're going to come back to this verse actually, but I want to highlight it here because I feel like the Lord really wants to emphasize this. Press this down in our hearts. Verse 15 of chapter 2 of the letter of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. This is who he's talking about. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, Okay? Not, not justified, not made righteous by what he does, even according to the law of God as given to Moses. Those things do not save a man. They do not make him righteous, but what? But, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be saved. No flesh. It's faith that Jesus has done everything on your behalf to be made righteous through his shed blood on the cross before Jehovah God, Yahweh God. This is how, this is how we are saved. Make no mistake for anybody on the planet to get justified other than that. To be made righteous in the sight. To be made clean when they were unclean. The only way that happens is by coming to faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Amen? Amen. So we're praying for that. We're praying for that. We're praying for people to know not just what it's like to have a religious lifestyle, but Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Acts, as we go on, chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey, that is the people that were sent by Cornelius, and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop, this is in Joppa, about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, 
and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing the food, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheep descending down, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In the sheep were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never, let me emphasize that again, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Ever. Do you think Peter was lying? I don't. I think he's genuinely bold for God. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So let's look at Peter's vision briefly. It says, he fell in a trance, he saw heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So I told you we we're going to go back to Leviticus 11, so turn there again. I want you to see where these things come from and why it would be so difficult for Peter to kill and to eat. Leviticus, in uh, verse 1 in chapter 11, says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. So there's a whole lot of animals of these. These are the ones you're not, or you may eat, rather. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud, or those that have cloven hooves, the camel, so that camels are off the list, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves. It's unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud, doesn't have cloven hooves. The hare, because it chews the cub, doesn't have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcass you shall not touch. Get that? The carcass you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales. Whatever in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But in all the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. And you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, and the buzzard. Praise the Lord, that's in there because... The kite and the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the... Please, James, stop the list. Can we just summarize it for a second? No. All flying insects that creep... On all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. But But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Verse 24, by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. The carcass of any animal which divides the foot but is not cloven hoofed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. And whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, those are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries away any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It's unclean to you. So there's daily uncleaning. You just, some lasted till the evening, or till the day was over, rather, and some you were just unclean. These shall also be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth, so on and forth, so forth. Jump down to verse 44, or 43. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps. Nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, 
and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the water and every creature that creeps in the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal may not be eaten. So you're asking yourself, I know, did he really have to go through all of that? Listen here, the end part of that passage is God reminding them about his holiness. There's some connection between God's requirements and what they eat and what they don't eat and his holiness and making an example to the people of what is clean and what is not clean, what is good and what is to be avoided. And for us, we're like, why? Pig is really good to eat. If you've had bacon any time recently, you know, these different animals, why can I eat a locust and not ham? You know, those things. For us, it can be very uh, trivial. And even in my quiet times, I've found passages like this in the past and labored through them to think, why, God, would you tell this to your people? Why, God, would you be speaking it to me now? Why am I reading this thus and therefore? And every time, the only answer I need or we need, is I'm holy and listen to me. Okay? That does a lot of good for me. Does it for you? I am holy. I'll tell you what to do, what not to do. You just follow it and be blessed. And know that I want you to be holy and set apart. Now, is this once and for all? I don't think so because of a whole lot of theology that we're not going to go necessarily in today. But I will leave you with this. Certain things in the Old Testament are stated and not eternal. Some people would argue with that. I've been reading a whole gamut of information in in past years about these types of issues. But I will say this, that that is why Peter's vision is very powerful. Because Peter's going to find out, case in point, there's certain things that God can change on. From our perspective, he's done a 180. From his perspective, it's been a lesson to prepare us for the Savior and to see how he fulfills it, and to use that eternally as fulfilled scripture. Are you with me with that? It's a little confusing, but I'm, I, it's important that we establish this. There's reasons for these things in the scriptures, and it's good. And the holiness of God is what he's about. I am holy. You need to know this. Trust me, my people. And as you do that, you will discover along the way, like Peter, that it's so good that we are obedient for the sake of just being obedient to what God says. But some things that are fulfilled in Christ are not for us to abide by. With me? No one's falling asleep with a cloven hoof, right? All right. There's a reason. God declares he's the one that decides what's clean, what's not clean. And that's okay. This isn't don't sleep with your dad's wife type of thing, but it nonetheless is an obedience thing for the people of Israel. And as they obeyed, They were given the promise, you will prosper. So is it worthwhile, church, for us to argue with somebody that you can eat pig? Is it worthwhile? No. Paul takes this principle and and says, hey, there's food sacrificed to idols. Can you eat it or not? You know, he reduces it down. He basically says, hey, there's weaker brothers and there's stronger brothers. Weaker sisters, stronger sisters. For the sake of the weaker, don't eat it if you're with them. If you have liberty in Christ to eat it, eat it with joy and offer your thanksgiving to God. That's in essence what, if I summarize it down to what it is. So we love each other by being patient through these issues. And we don't say, hey, there's freedom in Christ. Eat all the pig you want to somebody who may have that conviction. And just like I said before, in some of these things, over time, God gives you liberty that you once had conviction in. It's possible. That can be controversial, but I'll say this. I think, and I would think I'd have biblical backing on this. It's very strong through Paul especially, that as you grow, as you grow in Christ, as you grow in Christ, the liberties increase, not decrease. That's very dangerous to say. And I'm actually got some goosebumps. Here's what I mean by this, you guys. This is my personal conviction. Not everybody agrees with me on this. 
but at the legalism which makes your list shorter, makes your list smaller in areas that God did not intend most often. I'll give you some examples. Our worship team used guitar and amplification and drums. Okay? That, to me, is more liberty. Um, some people drink alcohol. The Bible's very clear. Do not be drunk on wine, but be rather what? Filled with the Spirit. But some people drink alcohol, and they don't get drunk, and they use it to glorify God, and they use it to celebrate the fruit of the vine. I personally um, have that conviction that I don't want to cause anybody to stumble, so I'd rather not do it if I'm convicted about it, and, and the setting's very important, and the environment's very important, and whoever would be around is important, but I'm not going to fault somebody for having that liberty if they do it for the glorification of God. Does that make sense? I think your lists of freedoms go out. What you can wear, if you can dance, if you can enjoy secular music once in a while. <laughs> I'm not promoting these things as good in themselves. I'm just saying, I believe that when God sometimes says, hey, it's time to kill and eat, it's a good thing because it's loosening our grip on things that God didn't intend for us to be constrained by. Because at the end of the day, what's good is what God's created. Amen? It's how it's applied that can be a chain over us, a destroyer of our lives, a, um, a sin that entangles And as we enjoy freedom, we don't say to those who don't have a conviction on our areas, well, forget them. They haven't matured yet. Well, now we're back to the immaturity again. Right? Forget them is never something we can utter in a church and be loving one to another. We say, Lord, this is where I'm at right now, but it could change. You could change me on this. Maybe next week I'm not dancing anymore. Personally, for me, it's a, it's a case of not wanting to get injured. So you may have difficulty with some of the stuff I've mentioned. I don't, I don't give this as a law of God, but I do say it's, it's praise the Lord that we can be gracious one to another as we wrestle out and we work out our faith and fear and trembling before God in our individual past and come together as a community and still say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And maybe I don't agree with these liberties or not liberties or the application they're in, but I'm going to love you as we walk it out together as we discuss it out together, as we look to the scriptures together. And hey, I feel this way now, but I'm going to say at the beginning, I may not feel this way in a week or two or three. Now, the essentials of the gospel, those don't change. The essentials of the gospel never change. We will never negotiate. I had a conversation this past week with a really awesome guy. Happened to find out that he was Jehovah Witness. We're both in Starbucks. I have my Bible out. We start a conversation. And, there's, and, and we had a great conversation on some of this you, you know, uh, kind of commonality, this, this environment we both are loving and serving God, who we worship. But there came a point where he, he just says, I know you don't really agree on the Trinity as much, huh? And I was like, you know, I don't. Uh, we differ there. And that, to me, is an essential. And we started talking about what are essentials and what are not. And it was great because we were able to have a respectful conversation one with another where I could say, this is where I will not budge. This is where God stays true and he will always will be. Jesus is the Son of God who is the Son of Man who is prophesied to come, who is not God just because he arrived on, in Galilee's shores in, in about 2,000 years ago, but he was always there. It says, before Abraham was, I am. That's what Jesus said. I ascribe to that as being true. I will not go anywhere with that. But I will say, all the rest is look what happens to Peter. God says, Peter, rise. Kill and eat. I'm going to change some things here. And Peter says what? I've never. That's where we get into trouble, guys. Because you can't say, Lord... And you can't say no in the same sense. <laughs> but I try a lot. Do you? I try a lot. And a lot like Peter is in the people he's calling me to minister to. I don't feel comfortable. 
I don't have things in common with them. I wouldn't even know what to say. And he's like, I want you to rise, kill, and eat because it's not about food, Peter. It's about men and women and their children that need to know about me and love to me and to come to know the gospel. And you can't be hung up with these things that are not meant to be hang-ups for you to impede the message that I want to give. Because remember when Jesus said, I have authority in heaven and earth, therefore go into all the world, preaching what I've taught you, baptizing them, and raising them up as mature believers who can walk with Jesus and call him Lord. But he says, I'm not going to rise, kill, and eat God. I've never done that. And God's like, you know what? He didn't strike him down. He was very patient with him. And he says, this is what you're going to do. Now, God is our curios, and that's to whom we belong. A person or thing belongs about which he has power of deciding. He is master. He is Lord. He's the one that tells us what is and what isn't. So God, help me. Help me to do that. What God has made clean, don't call unclean or common. Man, that's a lesson we all need to be prepared well for ministry. Amen? Cornelius and his family, do you know they were the first Gentile converts? If Peter had stuck to his guns and say, nope, not going to do that, even as he knew the word and applied it, which is kind of a crazy thing when you think about that, that God could say, hey, Peter, I fulfilled these requirements in my son Jesus. You may not understand the fullness of it now, but you will as you apply it to men who need to know me and their household. And trust me, Peter, trust me. Listen to Spurgeon. We'll close with this. In fact, um, I'll just throw it on the screen so you can read it with me. It's kind of it's weighty. It's kind of confusing at that end, but this is awesome. Talking about our liberties and our in our staunchness before God. It says, Peter had pretty much put God in a box of limitations. And now God was going to shake Peter up to change his thinking. He can do the same for us. Quote, shake shake yourself up a little, my brother. If you're too precise, may the Lord set you on fire and consume your bonds of red tape. Isn't that amazing? If you're too precise... Let him consume it. If you've become so improperly proper that you cannot commit a proper impropriety, say that ten times fast. Listen to the power of that statement. If you have become so improperly proper, that means it's not in a righteous sense, it's just you're becoming more strangled by what you think is proper, that you can't commit a proper impropriety, can't go against that, then pray God to help you be less proper. For there are many who will never be saved by your instrumentality while you study propriety. Man. Many won't be saved. So what's the antithesis of that? Lord, your Lord, speak to me, truth. Lead me by your Holy Spirit. Guide me and reveal to me the things that I have as hang-ups that you don't intend. Change my heart, God. Make me more of a vessel that's ready to serve you and the people you bring into my life so that they can know Jesus is the true fulfillment of all religious activity. And without Jesus, there's nothing. Change me, God. Is that your prayer today? That you might be changed, that you might not be about wrong propriety, but that you would be about the right God-led propriety. And that in the meantime, we could have grace one with another as we dialogue on these difficult things. I don't pretend to know everything about the Levitical law, but I do know my commitment to love that Lord might bless that so that we can walk together as we work these things out that I don't have all figured out. I don't want to give that impression, by the way. I'm on a journey like you are. Maybe I've said some things you don't agree with, but that's okay. I feel it's okay in light of the scripture we just looked at this morning because it really reminds me that, you know what? There's only one God, and he's the holder of all truth. And meanwhile... I get to journey and make a lot of mistakes along the way that he's gracious over. And Lord willing, I walk with a people who are likewise to me, gracious and patient. I know my wife is. I know my wife is. I know my wife is. (laughs) Amen? That's the Lord's word for us this morning. Let's have the worship team come forward and we'll... uh, I want to invite you, thank you, I want to invite you to the communion tables around the room. 
Um, again, they're out every week so that if you feel led, you can celebrate the Lord's sacrifice on our behalf so that we might come as needful sinners. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll pray. If you need prayer, if you're going through tough stuff, you just need somebody to encourage you. We have people that are going to be over by the cross. Just to lift up your burdens together, as we talked about earlier, a community that we do that together. There's also these carpets that we just make available as needed. Some people just want to get right with God, and, and for them that means, and not that it has to be sin necessarily involved, but just they just want to come and kneel down before God as, as a symbol that their, their Lord is really their Lord. And it may be for you this morning that you come and you use this carpet or space around this room to demonstrate to your own heart, I want you, Lord, to be really my curios. I don't want to, I don't want to, I want you to be master and me to be slave, not the opposite. So it's available for you as well. So let's pray and then we'll worship and give God glory. God, uh, we're, we're unfinished. We are works in progress. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. And we know there's a great deal of, of work to be done in between those two. That, that we might be uh, people that you have cleansed and made righteous and holy, set apart for your work, God, in this world. And God, we know that the angel didn't proclaim the gospel to Peter, or rather to Cornelius. Lord, you brought Peter to do it. And, and though we may not understand why you would use imperfect people, we want to be those people, God. We want to have respectful dialogue with each other. We want to have respectful dialogue with those who don't know you. We want to continue to pray with fervency in full faith that you're going to move miraculously as needed to save our loved ones and our friends and to bring the gospel in the areas that may be even hard against the gospel currently, Lord. So move and allow us the privilege of being reminded today uh, afresh of that which you want to change in us for we commit ourselves afresh this morning to you. We love you, Jesus. We look to you and your Holy Spirit to work out your will in our lives.